0: Hello and welcome to The Fire Podcast. I'm Ryan Rhodes. Today we discuss angelic visitations and destiny-shaping encounters, merging intellectualism and the spirit-filled life, and the church's role in politics and why keeping the church's doors open is essential. My guest today is Russell Johnson, and he, along with his wife Maria, pastor The Pursuit, a church here in the greater Seattle area that is unapologetically presence-focused theologically Pentecostal and rapidly growing amidst a predominantly postmodern culture. Uh, he's, he's become a great friend of mine. I'm excited. He's also one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And I think that'll, that'll really come through in this podcast. And you guys will uh, get a lot out of this. Uh, also, if you love this podcast, please consider uh, supporting us either one time or monthly. Uh, that just helps us to grow what we're doing here um, and reach more people. So you can go to firemovement.com/support, uh, and you'll see those options there. Also, please share this, uh, share this with your friends, share it on social media, and uh, also subscribe, follow whatever way you listen to this podcast, whether Spotify or Apple Podcasts or another. Um, please go ahead and follow us on those those platforms, uh, and also if they have a the. A place to leave a rating of some sort, like Apple Podcasts, you can give up to five stars and you can write a little blurb about it. Please go ahead and do that. That just helps us. Um, one thing you might have noticed is we do not pop up very high in the search, uh, op- uh, search options on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And the reason is, is because they look for those ratings and they look for followership. So please do those things as well. That'll really help uh, bump us in the ratings. Lastly, if there's anything, uh, uh, any way that this has impacted uh, impacted you personally, any testimonies, uh, suggestions, comments, whatever it might be, send it my way. Um, please reach out to us on one of our one of our platforms, on our social media, through DMs. Something, uh, reach out to us. Let us know how this is impacting you. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. And uh, now we'll have a quick sponsor segment.
1: Religion loves jesus the teacher is even okay with jesus the prophet religion is not okay with jesus the breaker of bondage the transformer of hearts the savior of nations because the real jesus is the anointed one he doesn't just have good teachings he is the the breaker of bondage he will transform you you got to go after knowing him more he's worth it he's worth he's worth your time He's worth your life. And there's there's nothing, this, this city, this nation, the nations of the world are not going to be transformed by a satisfied people. They're going to be transformed by lovesick warriors. Because if he's for us, who can be against us? If the king of the universe and all of his goodness, all of his backing, if all of heaven is for you, is standing behind you, supporting you, how, how could anything succeed against you? How could you fail? We could, we could change the world. That's not just a fun phrase. If you'll give your life to this thing, to the real thing, if you'll find the real Jesus, the one who burns with eyes of fire, if you'll get a real hunger in your belly and you don't let anything else stop you, and if you'll if you align yourself with who you are as a son or daughter of God, there is nothing that can stop you.
0: This is The Fire Podcast. Well, hey, I'm here with Russell Johnson, the pastor of the Pursuit NW, the Pursuit Northwest. What, 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 what do you ever say the Pursuit Northwest?
2: No, actually, we're just now going away from uh, any type of NW or Northwest. We're just saying Pursuit. It's just easier.
0: Yeah. Not pursuing a certain direction, just any direction. Just any direction, man.
2: (laughs) Just, uh, just point me in a direction, any direction.
0: Awesome. Well, um, you heard at the beginning of this podcast, a little bit of an introduction uh, of this conversation, Uh, but Russell's been my pastor. We're actually coming up on a year uh, that we've been at The Pursuit next month um, at the time of this recording, which is pretty cool. Time flies when you're in COVID. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, to give you guys a little bit of an understanding of of who Russell is, uh, I think he's... Uh, one of the greatest minds I've ever met in the body uh, brings a, a the kind of intersection between the intellectual and the spiritual. Um, Russell, I was even when I was like praying about this, I don't think I've ever shared this with you, um, but just praying about who you are and then praying about this. I was reminded this, this kind of picture I've had of you of being a, a, uh, a pastor with a shepherding rod, but then a, a prophet with a sword. Um, and so you got a, a, rod, a shepherding rod in one hand and a sword in the other. And I think that that really fits kind of who you are, how you, you're not your typical, uh, you know, let's sit down and talk about your feelings kind of pastor. Sure. You, you definitely have that prophetic edge and you lead, you lead with that prophetic edge. Um, which is pretty incredible. But I wanted to, just starting off here, I wanted to, uh, ask you some questions about, about the church and, and what you, how, how you're leading the church, cause it is different um, and and also something I've shared with you that uh, I think is worth sharing here is I think I believe that the pursuit is a uh, and it's, it's an example of what Robert Laird and uh, told mm-hmm. me which was he, he talked about this intersection that was coming I asked him you know what's the future of the church and he said we're going to see an intersection between the seeker sensitive model of territorial church where seeker sensitive churches will very much focus on their community engaging their community reaching out to their community and they take over where they're at and they uh because that they grow really rapidly and they can grow to large numbers and he said it would be an intersection between that and the, the spirit-filled church, which typically does not take ownership of the area. They gather together, and everything kind of stays smaller. And he said the two would come together, and it would be churches. They wouldn't grow as quick as seeker-sensitive, but you would see 1,000 to 2,000, 3,000-person churches begin to pop up that were spirit-filled, mm-hmm. that would have room for Holy Spirit, uh, mm-hmm. but also would take over, uh, territorially take over their area for the kingdom. And I think Pursuit's a church like that. So I'd just like to hear a little bit of your heart behind the Pursuit, um, whatever you want to share with that.
2: Yeah, well, maybe I'll kind of start at the beginning and kind of share how um, we've developed over the last number of years. Uh, We planted about six years ago in a barn off of one of the highways here in a city called Snohomish. Snohomish is an agricultural community about 45 minutes north of Seattle. It's home to about 10,000 people, um, and again, the major industry is farming, uh, anything agricultural related. Also, Snohomish is known as like uh, the antique capital of the world, a lot of antique stores. And, um, I didn't kinda, know that. Yeah I, knew, yeah. I knew
0: the stores were here. I didn't know it was the antique capital.
2: <laughs> yeah. And so it's kind of like that Norman Rockwell Americana small town uh, vibe. Yeah. Uh, and for whatever reason, we felt like the Lord asked us to start a church here, so we utilized an empty barn, and um, pretty soon outgrow, outgrew that, and through a number of different moves, we now own a former JCPenney building in the business district of our city, have been growing there ever since, and God's been doing some incredible things, and that's kind of really been our heart, uh, and you mentioned it Um in your in your question but uh, we really wanted to combine the excellence of uh, a systems based approach to ministry with an uncompromising pursuit of the presence of God and so i consider it to be a strong ecclesiology married to a strong pneumatology and so we really want the church to function Uh, as well as it can understanding that it is an organization and organizations have cultures and those cultures have rules and processes and the better that you understand how those organizations work the more efficient your staff can be and the more attractive your model can be and that's really what the seeker sensitive model has brought I think to the church world is it's brought a professionalization towards the organizational environment I think oftentimes in church world people say things like well I just need Jesus and where two or three are gathered he is there and it's like I get all of that stuff. I appreciate the pneumatology, but without also a love for organizational process and culture, then what you get is a lot of weird, small, charismatic churches. And so what we wanted to do is combine the best of both worlds. We wanted to combine the excellence of uh, seeker-sensitive with the power encounter of a real revival culture. And so... um, I don't don't know if we do that perfectly, but that is what we attempt to do uh, in in our environment. And like you said, it's given us the ability to have an uncompromising, presence-driven ministry um, narrative, but also uh, really function on some of the organizational things that we got to do that help people plug in and stay involved in local community. One of the things I'm working on now, which you know, you know of is that I'm doing my PhD in organizational leadership uh, at, at Northwest. And so um, that's been something I felt like God asked me to do to really help sharpen some of my skills. And, and people sometimes think it's strange. Well, why is a pastor getting a PhD in organizational leadership? And the reality is, is it's because I naturally lean towards the spirit filled, charismatic environment. I can do that stuff with my eyes closed. It's, it's natural for me. What's not natural is the excellence of systems. And so I'm going to lean in that direction, grow in that area, and then combine it to my other area of giftedness. And together, produce hopefully a really compelling organizational culture and a really compelling spiritual culture. And so for me, it's not either or. It's like, are you seeker sensitive or are you presence driven? Are you Bethel or are you Hillsong? Are you elevation or you life church, you know, it's all of these like dichotomies. And I go, Hey, we've got the opportunity. We planted non-denominational. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of rules. Right. So like we're, we have the ability to make this thing kind of how we think it ought to work best. And so what I'm trying to do is learn from a lot of different guys who are doing it better than us and, um, combine it into one kind of super system where we're using all of the strengths from the different models and and combining it into one hybrid. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's the game plan. So uh, we'll we'll see we'll see if it works.
0: Yeah. One thing I'll I'll say about uh, the pursuit and what's blown me away, uh, you know, being a part of the church is the ability or the willingness to try things and if they fail they fail like let's just try it like let's go for it and that like kind of just yes and just we're gonna go for it has been amazing to watch i mean uh you know when we we're having the, the revival nights walking into the into the building and walking into the holy of holies and violin playing and fountains and the ark of the covenant <laughs> it's, <Right>. like, <laughs> it's like oh, why not why not but i think at one point you're gonna have ribbon dancers or something, whatever the ones are from the ceiling. Yes. Yeah. Like, I love it.
2: Yeah. We tried to hire the ribbon dancers, but they were, uh, they were out because of COVID. But yeah, we, we tell people we have the triad anointing, which, um, is like, we want to build a laboratory of ingenuity and entrepreneurship where people can feel like, uh, any idea has the potential to be a good idea here. And so, Uh, We've tried to, in our staff environment, really create like an envisioning culture where no idea is off the table and uh, we have the ability to try things. And if they don't work, we're not married to them because the organization isn't old enough to have sacred cows. Hmm. Um, There's a lot of benefits to being a stable, older organization. Uh, But one of the benefits of being a younger, newer organization is that we're not old enough to be nostalgic Uh, we're just going after what works and we're not we don't we're not allegiant to it's not like well the the grand piano has sat in that spot for 30 years how dare you move it it's like uh, we'd do anything you know and so um, it's given us license to to really empower people to try things and I tell people every three months I replant the church every three months we get our team together we redraw the org map we change things up, we shift people, we add new people. we we uh, part of that's because the church is growing. and then part of that is because um, you know, I think sometimes in the way that people lead organizations, they think about it like they hit the lotto every time they win. And I just go, you know most you don't win, you don't learn from your wins. You learn from your losses, mostly. Like you learn the most when you try stuff and it doesn't work and you think to yourself, I'm never gonna do that again. <clears throat> you know, like a few weeks ago, we did an event where we parked a car in the lobby uh, and our, our entrance is like barely big enough to have a car get in. And I thought we could pull it off we have these huge glass doors that are like 12 feet tall, just massive glass doors that are part of our lobby entrance. And the car nicked the glass door going in and, and broke it. And uh, I just thought to myself, no, never going to do that again, but I'm going to try it once. And so, uh, yeah, it's a kind of a stupid example, but really, you know, for us, I think one of the things that we really value is creating a culture where people feel like we can try and fail and also try and succeed at doing church differently.
0: Hmm. So good. And that, that's something I've, I've witnessed, you know, um, most people don't know this. I would be listening to this, but you know, we came out here, we had plans to do our, our own thing. God kind of halted everything. We had a dinner at your house and, uh, and you know, that kind of came about because Jasmine Tate, um, who will be on the podcast soon and Landon, both Landon shot, both told me like, Hey, you can really trust this guy. And Landon specifically said like, he's not going to compete with you. And that was a big deal. Um, But, and I trust Landon, so I I would move forward, even though I'm like, I don't know of a pastor that doesn't compete. Sure. Uh, I haven't seen that before. Sure. Uh, And, but I've seen that in you and getting to know you. We have dinner at your house. God says to go spend a year with you guys um, and just help out where we can. And so we've gotten to build a friendship, which has been really amazing. But I've also seen that, like, you don't have competition. You don't really care uh, what other people are doing, which is kind of... Uh, freeing in a lot of ways, because I feel like a lot of leaders feel like they have to care about everything that everyone's doing and, sure. and wonder if it's going to affect them and stuff. And you just are like, I don't care what's going on over there or down the road, or I'm, I'm doing this, this is what I know to do. And you just do it. You don't compete. And you just don't even feel that competition within the church, which is really refreshing. So I just want to share that piece.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, a few months ago, we have these billboards in town that we that we take out, and we try to put different messages and different <laughs> the advertising. <laughs> but one of them we took out, this was like a year ago, we just said, hey, if Pursuit isn't your cup of tea, here are 15 other great churches in the area. So we took out this huge billboard and uh, a- advertising and, and letting people know that there's other places in town that are meeting needs. And, you know, to me, when I think about church world, I think about ecosystems. And ecosystems require animals of every size to function. They require Mm. animals that you don't like. They require animals that are bigger than you and smaller than you. And I think like in the church world, sometimes there's so much um, competition or insecurity or ego or uh, you name it, sometimes all combined together, that people just go, if I'm not the biggest, freshest, newest, coolest thing, then... You know, it's just like one internal crisis after another. And I think maybe when mm. we started, there was some of that, but God dealt with that pretty pretty quickly because it was just unsustainable. It's not a sustainable model for, 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 for us. And so there's such a freedom that I think comes in your life when you're just like, hey, we're not the church for everybody. I think we're the church for a lot of people, but I don't think we're the church for everybody. And so we're going to pastor whoever God sends our way. We're going to do our best to grow and develop as much as we can. But um, you know, uh, uh, I think something that's super attractional to to uh, people looking to belong to a community in this season is just leaders who just go, I, I, I'm, a whole, I'm going to hold this with an open hand, and if if you can rally with us for a year, awesome. If you can rally with us forty years, awesome however long the Lord lends you to us. But my pastor said something to me prior to planting. He told me this. He said, never forget, they're not your people, they're God's people. And for hmm. for whatever reason, that's just stuck with me. And it doesn't mean that we don't, you know, it doesn't mean that we don't believe in what we're doing and want to advocate for it. But it's just like, at the end of the day, the Lord spoke to me when, when, when we planted. And he said, for every person you lose, I'll give you two. Hmm. And so for me, I've used that that's to so help powerful. guard my heart of just going... Hey, God, like God's got this. God's got people in the city I haven't even met yet. God's already got people. He's got people at the next campus I haven't even met. He already has people in the city. And people will leave because that's a part of it. That's a part. I and mean, Jesus says this in, 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 I think, John 17. He goes, I haven't lost anyone except the son of perdition. <laughs> you know, speaking of Judas. Like even, even in the same leadership culture that produced 11 world-changing disciples also produced one Judas. And I think sometimes pastors are like, I'm going to create the best system in the world. And then they're just absolutely devastated when they have a betrayal, when they have a Judas, an Absalom, a Jezebel, when they're dealing with things like this. And I just go, hey, this is part, this is actually part of it. This is actually part of leading a church and developing an organizational system. You will produce world-changing ideas and people and events, and you'll also produce some Judases." That really hurt you, and it doesn't mean that you failed as a leader. It means that you're creating a table that's long enough for people to sit at, even sometimes people who are not developed in a place where they can honor what you're offering. And so, I don't know. It's been a great resource for me when we've lost people or gone through transitions and changes. Just going back to that word, like, "All right, God's got people," you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and I think you've you've seen that in this season because I. I yeah literally as soon as we committed we left your house that night and god spoke has spoken to my wife and she's like we're supposed to stop everything and go be there a year and uh as soon as we left and she said that i knew it was god we we made it that was it that was a decision in our heart we're like okay we're in it we're gonna go be there a year and then everything got shut down right (laughs) right like immediately so
2: funny i forgot about that actually yeah you're right yeah,
0: it was it was literally like we told our our group of people here like, hey, this is what we're doing, and then it was like, and everything's online,
2: right? right. <laughs> so and see in four months, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, but you guys have grown, and like you said, you're you're in. Uh, I just want to make this observation: you don't fit Snohomish at all. Like you personally, you you drive a Tesla, you're wearing a purple Supreme hat, like <laughs> you know, like you just your style, even the style of pursuit doesn't seemingly fit the community. Um, but the church has grown. I think, I think the church was about 400 or so when we started and now it's what thousand yeah. three services packed out the building. There's, I know this from experience, there's no room in the parking lot. Right. Um, and, and your vision doesn't stop in Snohomish either, but, uh, you know, you've, you've seen God really bless that. So Can we just talk about that a little bit? Talk about what made you open up the church again? Because you you did go solely online for a little bit, and then you went against the grain, and you're one of only a couple churches. Our friend Darren Stott, they're open as well. Right, right. Um, But in the Seattle area, Mm -hmm. uh, most churches are closed down.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, when the COVID stuff first hit about a year ago uh, in, what, February or March of, of 2020, it was, it was so new that we didn't really know what we were wrestling with. And it was like in the process of 72 hours, it's like the entire world shut down.
0: Yeah,
2: I've never seen anything like it. And I don't know if we'll ever see anything like it again. Um, to me, it's kind of like when you talk to your grandparents and they tell you about the Great Depression and it just sounds like... S- it's, it sounds like something from a movie like that couldn't have been real. That couldn't have been a real experience. That's how I feel like this story will translate to the next generation. Like they'll be like, Hey grandpa, tell tell us about the COVID shutdowns and we'll talk about it. And it will be like a foreign, it'll be like a foreign like object to, to, to these guys. They'll be like, what are you, that, it doesn't even make sense. But um,
0: Back back in my day, back you sit in my inside day. a restaurant, you had to sit outside <laughs> right. in a tent.
2: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, so we you know, so when everything shut down, you know, we just we didn't know what we was dealing with, and so we shut down with everybody else, and and you know, then as the weeks went by and the months went by, we went from like fifteen days to flatten the curve. Everybody has to stay in your house to months and months of basically Y'all are gonna be shut down endlessly and and there's nothing you can do about it. And so, you know, as we were praying and talking with our legal counsel and talking with our board of directors, we really felt like, hey, we're gonna reopen starting on Pentecost Sunday, which we did. And we made the decision that going forward we were gonna stay open. And as you know, there was there was there's been this back and forth with the government. They've allowed things to reopen, then they've shut everything down again. And then it reopens and it shuts everything down again. And we just decided we're not riding the roller coaster. We're going to stay open and come hell or high water, they can fine us, they can jail us. The church is going to stay open. And so since Pentecost Sunday, we've been open every Sunday. And like you've said, not only have we sustained, but we've grown. And uh, we still probably have, I would say, 200 or 250 who are a part of our community who are still watching online Just because of different personal decisions and folks are high risk and everybody's got to make the decision that's right for their family, which we respect. But, you know, our real conviction was that, hey, we got to we got to open the doors of the church. And so um, I think that comes from a real high view of church. And I think my high view of church comes from my high view of scripture and to me, church is not like this ancillary, um, tangentially connected construct to what the New Testament teaches. I mean, it's 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 centered around the church and Christ being the head of it. And so, um, for me, the idea that we would wait until the governor could tell us to go back to church, uh, the governor is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. And so, for us, we just we made the decision that regardless of what the governor said or even the president said, that our conviction was that the church needed to be open. And uh, we've been harassed by the state. They've threatened to put me in jail. They've threatened to fine us with $10,000 fines per incident. Now, none of that has come to fruition. They've threatened, but none of it's come to fruition. So I want to be clear about that. But, um, And I don't have like a persecution complex. I, I think some people adopted a persecution complex in a sense to try to make themselves maybe feel more important than they actually were. I, I, don't, I don't know if this is persecution, but I definitely think it's interference. And um, I just go, you know, this was the COVID stuff was right in the middle of the racial stuff, political stuff, economic stuff. It was like a, a, a storm of conflict and outrage all at once. And pastors have had to be epidemiologists political commentators, uh, agents of racial reconciliation. Uh, you know, at one point there was a threat, uh, that Antifa was coming through our town and the whole town was on guard. Uh, people threatened to burn down our church. We've had death threats, you know, it's stuff that we would have never imagined in this country we've experienced in the last 12 months, but through it all the church has grown. And I think people have been attracted to the idea that we are unapologetically going to open our doors and, and let people worship as they see fit. Um, and I don't mean that in any disrespectful way. I know different pastors have made different decisions, but you know, in acts 15, um, the council at Jerusalem, they use this language that I use a lot in my decision-making matrix. They say this, and it seemed good to the Holy spirit and to us. And so for our congregation, for our board of directors, it seemed good to the Holy spirit and to us that we would open our doors. You know, and of course, every, you know, person who has a PhD in Facebook theology has a comment on, (laughs) well, you don't love your neighbor and you don't, you know, it's like, I heard more antagonistic comments from Christians than I did from anybody else. Well, you don't love your neighbor if the church is open. I'm like, I never seen you witness to your neighbor. You don't give any offering. You don't show up at stuff, but all of a sudden you're an expert on loving your neighbor. It's just interesting to me, you know, but it is what it is. But, you know, through it all, God's been good to us and And, you know, we're just, uh, you know, right now, I think the government restrictions in our state are like 25% or something like that. And we just, Mm -hmm. we're at about 125%. We're just, we're just going to open to church and uh, we're not going to apologize for, for opening. So that's kind of where we're at. And uh, I think, I think God has added increased, increased to our congregation because of the stand we've taken. So,
1: yeah.
0: Well, and, and I believe you've mentioned this, but I'm sure that's given other pastors the courage to actually, in the area, to do that as well.
2: Yeah, I think so. You know, and especially early on when we opened, we, we got calls from other other congregations and saying, Hey, what are you doing? Let's all stick together so that if they come after one of us, they have to come after all of us. And um, I, look, I, I love tech. I love the 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 newest latest greatest. I love my iPhone. I love live stream. I love it all. But um, I think people can meet Jesus via technology. I just think that it's a poor substitute for in person relational discipleship. And so um, for me, live stream is a supplement, but it's not a substitute. And. For months, the church was basically forced to use something supplemental as substitutionary. And I think ultimately it's impacted people's spiritual health, mental health, emotional health, familial health, all in relatively negative ways. And so I know some people, you know, and again, I think sometimes in an attempt to make the most of circumstances, we like sugarcoat things like, oh, it's not that bad or we'll figure it out. But the reality is, is that uh Uh, technology helps us do the work of the gospel. It helps us advance the mission of the church. But uh, I don't think that it's um, the wineskin or the exclusive wineskin for the development of people. And people were meant uh, to be together in community, in relational community, in person. And so you know, some people say, well, you can worship anywhere. Why do you have to worship at church? And then our governor, as you know, said, no singing's allowed at church. You know, it's like, I mean, we're dealing with a Nebuchadnezzar type spirit. It's crazy. And, you know, I just said, we're not doing this. We're not listening to this. Uh, Our allegiance is to Christ first, and uh, we're going to worship. But it was just funny, you know, different people, you know, well, you know, you don't, you don't have to sing in order to worship. You don't have to go to church in order to be a Christian. I'm like, I think you're missing the point. The point is that the church is the steward of the mystery of God. You know, it's what Paul gives his life for. It's the revelation of Peter to Christ upon this rock. I will build my church. I I mean, uh, Jesus's uh, obsession uh, is, is, Uh, the development of this wineskin, the development of the church. Uh, The Holy Spirit is sent as the comforter and the empowerer to do the work of the ministry inside the context of the local church. And so, and I'm a fan of parachurch ministries. I'm a fan of all of it. I want it all. Uh, But I think if anything has strengthened for me over the last season, it's my theology on the church and my theology on scripture. And so I think we're seeing a little bit of separation here of wheat and tares in this season. And uh, for me, I, I'm, I'm doing my best to be faithful to the upward call of God which is in Christ which to me centers around for my life it centers around the concept of stewarding a community inside the context of a church so yeah. I don't know I could be wrong but I don't think I am so
0: <laughs> yeah I well when you get down to like can people be discipled by by tech by media yeah Think you can for a time? I think mm-hmm. we've all probably had that season of life where we got more of YouTube videos of our right. of a preacher of Francis Chan or you know somebody sure. like you know and, and that kept us alive or Bethel Bethel videos to Bill Johnson that kept us alive and in, in between seasons. Right, right. Um, but as a long term strategy, man, can you imagine if uh, if the church all went the tech route and had no in person stuff for a year or two years or however long this lasts? And then tech decides to shut everything down, right? Like and
2: and we're seeing the... that. And <laughs> you know, people used to think that we we was conspiracy theorists. You know, oh, you guys are conspiracy theorists. But we're seeing that though, that if you disagree with the official narrative uh, for any number of issues, that just overnight you can have your social media account banned, you could be deplatformed, you could be kicked off of servers, you could have um, your bank cancel and close your accounts and, you know, all all, all sorts of things. Uh, and I think, um, I think for, for, for us, uh, I'm, I'm, I I think about this in the context more broadly. We've talked about this, this cancel culture stuff of, of, of always being afraid if you're going to say the wrong thing or, um, Uh, be reflected, uh, be reflected upon, you know, if you, if you disagree or say something that's politically incorrect. And, and if we are entirely dependent on third party uh, social media sites or servers or internet service providers who um, have no interest or no shared common belief in the ethic or the culture of, you know, Christological followership, that's a short term strategy. You're one, you're one complaint away from not being able to live stream at all. And so um, to me, I think you're absolutely right. People who are going all in, hey, we're only going to be an online church or we're only going to do a digital strategy. I'm like, we need digital strategy. That ought to be part of it. However, if that's our only mode, like you are saying, if it's supplemental, you're using it in between seasons or you're using it as an add-on to an existing foundation, Awesome. Uh, But if that's our only, that's our primary... You know, you look at the Pauline epistles. Paul wrote letters because he was in prison. He wrote letters because he couldn't be there. He didn't write letters as a replacement for discipleship. Hmm. It was like, oh, yeah, I'm locked up again. I can't be there, so let me write a letter. But he always wrote a letter and sent it with a courier, a true son of the faith, a Timothy, a Titus, a Barnabas, somebody else. Uh, And so... um, You know, I don't think you see the ethic in the Pauline epistles of like, well, I I, I could be there, but I just don't want to be. So here's a letter, figure it out. You know, Paul's like, I labored with you. I was there two years. I was there all winter. Y'all begged me not to leave. I gave you the gospel. I instructed you. You owe your development to me. I mean, he writes that to. Uh, Philemon who's pastoring in Crete who has the runaway slave he tells Philemon he goes you owe me your faith <laughs> you're born again in the kingdom because of my influence in your life if you don't start acting right I'm going to travel there and I'm going to kick your butt you know and so I just think like I get it we want to go multi-site we're going to be using tech we're going to be doing those things but if that's our only avenue we're really short-sighted on this stuff it's dangerous
0: yeah well, and I think you know we've had this conversation but I think it ex- this is exposing that that we can't go fully the tech direction but it also exposed we can't go uh building centric either right, solely right. focused on this one corporate gathering and that's it like there has to be community built there has to be something that's sustainable beyond you know because buildings can get shut down buildings can be taken away people right, will probably right. still have you know Relationships, houses, neighborhoods—like they're not going to be isolated. Right. It's been—it's really interesting to see the church kind of respond to that. To like, how do we handle all of this? And uh, I think I think you're right. I I made a comment to somebody recently, and I'll 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 preface this by saying I'm sure there's a lot of people that they heard, you know, it was their decision with God, pastors and stuff. Like they had to make their decision. And someone probably made the right decision. Some probably did it wrong. Who knows? Uh, it's not really my place to figure out. Um, but I, I think that we're going to find out that this was one of the greatest moments for courage. And right. a lot of people right. showed cowardice. Um, I think that, that that's what is going to end up coming out. Is mm-hmm. we're going to realize that a lot of this weird... I mean, it's coming out in the World Health Organization and all right. this other stuff now <laughs> where numbers aren't correct. And where did all these other things like the flu go? And... Oh, we were misreporting stuff like that's actually current. That's current news stuff that's starting to come out. And so it's like, man, if we find out that we lost a year and suicides up and depressions up and all these things, like we haven't been in people's lives because of a narrative and a politicized thing and because of fear of what people will say, fear of repercussions. It's like, man, that's, that's some heavy stuff to have to, you know, stand before God and explain where you're at
2: yeah i mean i the I said this a few Sundays ago at church but 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 the church is the most essential human activity on this side of heaven hmm. and so this isn't like a, if you can get around to it, if your favorite team isn't playing on a Sunday, if your um uh You know, whatever, whatever it is, all the excuses that people have today. I'm not trying to be religious about it. You got to be here every time the doors are open. That's not what I believe. But, like, the church, in specific, the gathering of God's people in the context of corporate community for worship, praise, encouragement, communion, is the most important, essential human activity that exists on this side of heaven because. It is one of the very few activities that echoes in eternity and so yeah. for us like even when you think about marriage like even when jesus is asked about marriage he says and they will not be given in marriage in heaven i'm not saying that marriage isn't important to god it is it's super important it's a picture of what the church yeah. uh however uh to me going through this season i'm like it's not up to a government agency to determine whether or not the church is essential that's actually not You haven't, like Jesus who confronts the Roman authorities, he says that authority hasn't been given to you. That power hasn't been given to you. Uh, And so um, I think you're right. I mean, this is a season for courage. This is a season for boldness. It's a season to reevaluate strategy. It's a season to on board, you know, people of all sorts of different specialties who have different avenues and different areas of grace for different levels of communication. We need the digital, we need the in-person, we need the multi-site, we we need the in-home, we need the in-buildings. We we need it all. Mm-hmm. And and that kind of goes back to our original original conversation. We need a both-end approach. It's not either or, it's both end. Yeah. Uh, but I think for me in this season it's like <clears throat> we can we can have a lot of different approaches. However, uh, to me, uh, in order to have fellowship, we got to we got to have a common agreement that the church is the most essential gathering on earth. And and for me, uh, as a believer, not even as a pastor, not even as a person who leads a church, but just as a, as as a believer, my reading of scripture leads me to that conclusion.
0: Yeah, that's so good. I wanna I wanna ask you about. Uh without getting into politics, I want to ask you about Christian's role in politics, but yeah. I think this would be a good point. I wish I would have not confessed about, I won't say the name that I used in the email because it actually is somebody I know. <laughs> so a teacher from high school. But uh, I wish this would have been the point I confessed because that would have been hilarious if that your first funny. time hearing it was on this podcast. But basically, for, for those of you listening, like... He mentioned, I think it was a video you did with Lighty, like early on where you just talking about emails and like talking about the kind of emails you get on Mondays after after church. Right. And uh, as soon as I heard, I was like, oh, I'm (laughs) going to create an account and just come up with the most absurd emails from people complaining about stuff in the church, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Like, uh, it's funny like, because
2: you tried to be like super absurd, but it's not the most absurd emails <laughs> I get. So I'm just like, oh, we got another crazy. That's, that's what yeah. I thought. We have another crazy.
0: I, I might have to leak those at some point, at least yeah. leak screenshots Do of it. them or something. But, uh, you know, an example of one I, I was talking about, Jasmine Tate came and spoke at, at pursuit and I was talking about how a woman should have spoken in the church but because she had on a hat, I was like, well, she at least she had on a head covering. So she's good. Uh, so I, I appreciate that. Uh, so yeah. funny. <laughs> she's great. actually coming
2: again in March. Uh, third week of March, I think she's preaching. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, she'll be here.
0: That's awesome. I might have to get a live recording with her. Hey, I'm saying. We're supposed to record at the end of February. Maybe I'll do both. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so what... Uh, what do you believe, and actually, I, I don't know, we haven't really even talked about this, so I don't, we might even disagree on this, but what do you, you have a background, uh, which many may or may not know, um, in in the political world, what, 10, 10 years, 15 yeah, years?
2: 10, 10, yeah,
0: 10. 10 years, um, you know, before jumping in, being a, a, a church planner, at planning the pursuit, um, so what uh, what do you feel like Christians' role is in politics? You know, how how involved should they be? How outspoken should they be? What is that? What's your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I did about a decade uh, in political work, and um, I did a little bit of everything. I was a lobbyist. I worked on campaigns. I was a legislative aide I worked for the state house of representatives. So uh, I, I did I did just about everything, and then um, and I actually. Uh, was planning on moving to Washington, D.C., and just making a career out of it, and the Lord intervened and kind of changed directions for me. And so I'm still, I don't know if I would say politically involved, but I keep up to date with with all the political stuff, and especially in this season, it's been a mess, just just a mess. But um, I think with Christians, we're given to this kind of dichotomous spectrum where... um, You have people who are either not involved at all. They probably don't even vote or couldn't even tell you who's in office. Uh, And they just kind of don't care. It's like either it's a weird theology on like, well, my citizenship is in heaven, so I don't, you know, whatever. I don't have to care. Or it's just they're disgusted with the political world, so they don't even want to be involved, which I understand. Or it's on this other end of the spectrum. And these are like, we're going to, March on the Capitol and burn it down. You know, kind of like the Christian Dominionists, this really strong, mm. kind of nationalistic uh, theological position that uh, calls for kind of the Christianizing of of a nation and all of its related constructs. And I, I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, I, I I appreciate that the uh, I, I I appreciate that we have a mandate. We absolutely have a mandate to uh, disciple communities, uh, to reach nations, uh, to preach the gospel. I'm, I'm all in. And I think part of that is uh, a government mandate. And some people talk about it like the seven mountains, and people have different analogies for kind of how that works. But I, I definitely think that uh, we need a Christian witness and a Christian voice in the halls of government, because without it, we get the type of stuff that 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 we're seeing today. And so, um, you know, with that being said, I think sometimes people uh, they uh, they uh, kind of a, a, adapt a uh, a mindset like we're going to create heaven here on earth by christianizing all of the institutions that are around us and then christ will return it's kind of like a partial preterist or full preterist kind of eschatological view mixed in with christian witness and activity and it's 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 complicated and 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 is is not what i subscribe to and so I'm somewhere in the middle, man. We need Christians. We need to pray for government. We need to be a voice of truth. We need to be a prophetic witness. We need Christians in every sphere of society, especially in government, because government plays such a disproportionate role in the regulation and development of our lives. Uh, whether or not we have a free society, whether or not we have things like free speech, so on and so forth, those are all regulated by governmental wineskins. And Paul speaks about this in Romans and I think gives pretty clear scriptural evidence that 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 christians ought to have a place and a role and a voice in in governmental entities but uh if a christian president could have saved the nation we would already been saved and so um god uses both the believer and the unbeliever in governmental roles to help order nations and so uh i'm not i'm not planning on marching on the capitol anytime soon uh but um yeah, we need we need we need a prophetic witness in the halls of government for sure.
1: Yeah,
0: well, there's almost this other uh, dichotomy that's formed with uh, those who are just focused on the church, and then those who are like social justice. Right. And like I've heard people term it the social justice gospel, mm-hmm. uh, almost in a derogatory way. It's being sure. used that way, um, and kind of this. There's this weird separation that's happened. Do you have any thoughts on that, like where the church, as far as like social activism, speaking out about different issues, um, how, how should believers approach that in your opinion?
2: Yeah, and the church has a rich role in social activism over the last, you know, um, 200 years or so here, especially in America. I mean, the abolitionist movement to end slavery was primarily driven by the Christian church. Um, the Reformation of Child Labor Laws was uh, primarily an initiative led by the church uh, over in England. Uh, even things like animal welfare laws, that was an invention or a, a conversation that really started with uh, hmm. Wilberforce and and others. Uh, you know, so... Um, from the temperance movement to child labor laws, to animal laws, to anti-slavery laws, you name it, Uh, the church has played a prominent role in, I think, the development of society and the development of of a more free and fair and just society. And so I believe in justice, uh, and I believe in justice expressed in a social way through the help of the church and other type of Christian institutions. I, I think for us, who, you know, I like to say whoever controls the definitions wins the debate. And the term social justice has essentially been hijacked, I think, by a particularly secular, progressive, uh, borderline humanistic kind of political position to really describe things that um, are seemingly good but void of the gospel witness. And no matter how just a society appears to be or how good or virtuous an individual appears to be, without Christ and the hope of the gospel, they are irreparably lost. And so um, I think where I take issue with some of the focus on social justice is it has been seen as a replacement for instead of an addition to the gospel witness. And there is a mandate to clothe the poor, to feed the hungry, to heal the sick, to cleanse the leper, to cast out demons. That's part of the mandate. And you can't separate the witness of the church from those activities. Um, But they ought to work together instead of apart. And so, um, you know, for me, I want my love for scripture, my love for, for Jesus to motivate these activities. And, uh, and I, think, I think there's a lot of communities and places in which they do. Um, but I think what we're seeing today uh, in a pejorative sense is that people are attaching themselves to what I would call the, the, the hype train of pagan philanthropy. You know, the hype train of moralistic therapeutic deism. You know, it's this appearance of good it is this mm. appearance of virtue. You know, um, it is the appearance of outward religion. It is the appearance of doing good or doing well, but it's void. It's void of a Christological center. And anything void of a Christological center is cancerous. And so, you know, to me, I'm like, like, let, we got to get first things first. Uh, mm. You know, Wilberforce... Advocated for an ending of slavery out of a Christological conviction that both Jew and Gentile, men and women, black and white, ought to be able to sit at the same table. And so, you know, for me, it's the development of the Christ ethic inside of us that enables us to act in ways that are truly socially just. Um, Because social justice can mean a whole lot of things to a whole lot of other people. Some people say that, um, you know, to advocate for uh, even things like uh, abortion, that that's part of social justice because it's giving choice. And so you know, whoever controls the definitions ends up winning the debate. And I go, our definitions have to come from a high view of Christ, a high view of scripture. They have to come from that place because if not, uh, we'll be distracted doing a lot of things that seem good. See, there's a way that seems right. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. There's a way that seems right. And in our culture today, there is a way that seems right. And that way is often paved by what I would call, you know, socially left, progressive uh, 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 social justice. It seems right, but it's, it's missing something. And so um, I, I, I want to champion what is right uh But uh, I want to champion even more who is right in the the gospel it starts with a who and it's it 's Jesus, and what comes from that is a life changing ethos that that it, you know scripture in him we live and move and have our being, even as your poets say we are his offspring, and so everything that we do is wrapped up in the idea that we are followers of Christ uh, and that ought to impact every part of our lives from the way that we think about money to the way that we think about gender, to the way that we think about sex, to the way that we think about the climate. I'm for it all. But if it's missing Christ, it's a non-starter for me. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I've seen this uh, trend. I've been talking to some close friends about over. It's happened repeatedly um, where people that I know are believers get really sucked into whatever the thing is at that time. Right. And you just give it a few months even and they're onto something else. Right. And it just like it, but it becomes a spiral. And by the time it plays out six months to a year, they're not even following Jesus anymore. Sure. Um, and it, and I think it's exactly what you're saying. It's where it's, it's, it's a, it, it, there are things that aren't born out of that, but they, they seem right. Or they're, they right. seem similar to gospel, uh, truths or, or beliefs, and because of that, they're easily brought into it.
2: Um, it's kind of scary. Yeah, and it's and I think it's a it's it's I think every generation wrestles with their version of deconstruction. Our generation's version of deconstruction is wrapped in what appears to be that's the key word in what appears to be moral virtue. But what it's actually holding is this kind of self-focused, I would say poisonous, vacuum, void of a real real uh, Holy Spirit-led connection with Jesus. And um, deconstruction can be good. I think the Reformation, in a lot of ways, was a deconstruction of some traditional religious hierarchies in, in favor of a more organic approach to, to, to following the Lord. Um, and so I don't want to make it seem like, you know, people can't ever have room in their theological box to take a step back and question. But when you deconstruct Scripture in light of culture, instead of deconstructing culture in light of Scripture, you are on a slow to maybe fast path towards a total collapse of faith. And oftentimes what I've found, not all the time, but oftentimes what I've found is that deconstructionism is simply a holdover towards agnosticism or even atheism. And so, you know, wow. for me, I go, that's why I value Christian community so much because what I've, what I've found is a pattern is people disconnect from Christian community, they get isolated, they get alone, and when you're isolated, every... When you're isolated, you tend to believe everything you think. And that's maybe one of the most dangerous things we could do. When you're in community, you'll have a stupid idea and you'll tell somebody and they'll tell you it's a stupid idea. And we need that in our lives. It's not good for man to be alone. The only thing in creation that God says is not good is for man to be alone. So we've got a COVID crisis. Everybody's alone, isolated, isolated. You get uh, yelled at or mocked if you walk out in public without fourteen masks on. I mean, it's just absolutely nuts. On top of it, you've got this kind of wave, and every generation has it. But but we have this wave now coming to the surface. People growing up in church, they're all in their like late twenties or early thirties who are now like, well, I guess I'm just like questioning everything. And I, I get that. Like, there's room for questions. I think there's even room for doubt. The Roman centurion says, I believe, help my unbelief. I, we want to make room for, for that type of thing. But when we begin to deconstruct the revelation of Christ, our relationship with other believers, or even God himself, in light of what culture tells us is moral or right, that is a that is a quick path towards, towards total abandonment, or like Paul would say, a shipwrecking of the faith. And we have that, you know. It's so interesting to me um, that uh, you know when people look at morality today, they judge, um, they they judge all of history off of a very limited version of what society now tells them is moral. And uh, it's like it's 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 kind of popular in some of these more progressive communities. You know, people like to read into scripture things like privilege or um, things like critical theory, other types of things, which I guess is what it is. But it's just what we are adjudicating an eternal God and an eternal scripture off of a five-year window of what community college professors have told us is acceptable morality. Hmm. And I just go like, y'all ought to read the book of Job. Y'all ought to read the book of Isaiah You ought to read when God speaks to these men and says things like, were you there when I painted the galaxies? The nations are like a drop in the bucket to me. The Lord does what he wills. Uh, God is sovereign above it all. He sits above the circle of the earth. Uh, But, you know, in our own wokeness, we have made it our job to judge an eternal God off of a limited moral framework. And I just go, we live in the age where we call good evil and we call evil good and i just i just refuse uh i just i just i just refuse to even buy into that argument uh and for me man that's why people ought to stay in church but you gotta you gotta stay in church because uh because uh uh when you're alone you become an echo chamber and if the only voice you hear is yours that's a real dangerous place to be we talked about this even with the prophetic movement how prophets need houses that they can belong to and be a part of. The body is better when we're together. And um, it doesn't mean that you have to be weird and never leave the church. But uh, there's a reason why Paul uses the analogies he does to describe the church. And, you know, when people drift, you don't drift towards orthodoxy. You drift away from it. When people start drifting, it's not like they wake up more conservative, when people start drifting, it's not like they wake up and they go, man, I just want to serve God more and I want to tithe more and I want to you know be involved in my church internship more." When people start drifting, they drift away from orthodoxy. And so uh, you know I want to create a place where people on any part of the journey can come in and find a home, but also hear this message of like, look man, that there's a real mandate on your life to grow and develop. And unless you put your hand to the plow, you're going to spend your entire life looking back and then blaming God that you don't walk in victory. And so there's this aspect of our participation in this journey, which requires us to doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. And I've got things I wrestle with too. I've got questions and quandaries and, and fears and failures. And I'm processing that too. But I just I I refuse to judge God in light of culture. I just refuse.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it made me think of uh, something Benny Hinn said. He's he's he. I think he asked God this or something, but I, it's always stuck with me. Like what he said was, the it takes about two weeks to completely fall away from God, mm. like to have your relationship just kind of die, um, and, and to get to the place where you're numb mm. and you. You just don't even recognize it. And that's always stuck with me. And I've actually seen that to be true about even in my own life. I'll realize like, wow, I feel like distant from God right now. And I realize, oh, it's been about two weeks Mm. and I just haven't really pursued God or gone after him in any way, or I haven't worshiped. I haven't read the, you know, like those basic things just to maintain relationship and intimacy and realizing like, wow, I've, I've gotten cold. Right. And I I just wonder how much of it too is, is, (laughs) In, the, in all the noise and all the di- distraction people getting more and more distant and then once you're in that place and nothing feels real to you nothing about the church is going to be life giving or or change anything because you're cold you're numb to it all you're numb you're numb to the presence of God and you got to get back in his presence right, and go right, after right. him and, um, I want to I want to ask you a question so in in my uh, I did a podcast with uh, my friends the Proknevskys mm. um uh and And, in that we I shared something that I didn't really have the answer to, or you know, or a full thought around it. But I've noticed um, it seems like most of the issues, and this is kind of in that world of like, how involved should the church be? Most of the issues in the u s ha- are places that the churches have abandoned. So right. examples of that would be, um, you know abortion is one of the biggest issues but we also used to run all the orphanages we're the one adopting and taking in and the church is backed out of that in a sure. lot of ways uh, I remember in Ohio where I'm from basically the number of kids that needed adopted and the number of churches was the, almost exactly the same number so if every church adopted one kid had one family and that church adopt one kid it, it would take care of all the adoptions um and so there's that, there's marriage, like, you know, obviously there was all the reasons why marriage became a governmental institution, but like the government has nothing to say on what is marriage and what isn't, like if they, you know, two men get married and they say that's a marriage, like that, that's the church's job, God, God says what a marriage is, so that has nothing to do with the government, I don't really care, you know, like uh, health care, like the churches have always run the hospitals and walked in and healing uh, or are supposed to walk in healing power, um, so both of those things and we've we've abandoned our post and, and it's seemingly welfare taking care of the poor. We've taken these things, we've backed out of them, and we've tr- it's been put back on the government, and they are the biggest issues in our, our nation faces. They're the biggest issues politically. It's always you know there's left and right views of every single one of those, um, but they're places that the church especially in America has abandoned. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that? Do you, do you feel like, do you feel like we actually do agree with that statement that we've abandoned those, those places? And then if so, what, what has caused that? Um, what, what's caused us to get to this point?
2: Yeah, I think, I think the answer to the question is yes. Uh, and I think the answer to your second question is bad theology. Um, and uh you know when when you operate as if you have a mandate to change the world and you've got the spirit of god living inside of you giving you the power to do so then you look at these things not so much as challenges but as opportunities and and i think through a lot of bad teaching and bad believing we've we've had people abandon their posts or kind of uh can kind of go into what i call bunker christianity we're going to hide in the we're going to hide in the nuclear bunker until Christ returns to rescue us out of this place. And, you know, the reality is, is that's just a pretty sad way to live. And so I try to champion having a, a, a victorious view of the church and uh, uh, our, our role and our mandate uh, in society. One of the things that we tried to champion when I was in the political world is what we called private public partnerships. By which the government would partner with nonprofits, including a lot of religious nonprofits, to help advocate for at risk communities or low income communities where private and public entities could get together and provide things like health care and help for single moms and training and job development and after school care and you name it. Um, I think with the rising, I would say, animosity towards. Um, Christian belief and in, in from from the from the public sector, I think it's made some of those partnerships more difficult. Like I know one of the issues we had in our state several years ago is that um, the Catholics who did a lot of the uh, ran a lot of the adoption agencies, our state government came in and they said if you will not agree to place kids in same-sex couple households, we are going to strip you of all power to help with adoptions in Washington State. Well, it's, it's the Catholics. that They're not, just just on their central theology, they're not going to place kids in those types of homes because of their religious beliefs. But because the governmental sector was unwilling to recognize, number one, their religious beliefs, and number two, work with them, basically our state government shot itself in the foot. A lot of the Catholic agencies and adoption agencies stopped overnight, and the net result was that kids were hurting, families were hurting, and a lot of people who could have been helped now were left in the margins. And so I think we're seeing a growing animosity on the government side of things towards private partnerships with Christian organizations if they hold christian beliefs it's so funny to me when people are shocked that christian organizations hold christian beliefs they're like oh my god we just can't we just can't believe you'd be so bigoted and backwards and hateful and you're like what are you talking about this has been the orthodox position of the church for two thousand years what do you mean like that's not about hating anybody or or anything this is just i mean this is the this is the teaching of the church what are you what are you talking about and so sometimes the government acts surprise that churches believe what the Bible teaches us to, to, to believe. It's just completely bizarre. We saw this in Washington State. It was funny. You know, when finally the government decided that it was okay for the church to gather again, as if that's their role, when the government decided it was okay for the church, they printed pages and pages, you've seen this, guidelines and mandates for how the church can operate. And i read through these guidelines. We, we, we're not following any of them, but I read through the mandates And I recognized about halfway through, it was written by somebody who's never once attended church in their entire life. It it was written by people who had no idea what church was, what a religious gathering was. And I just went, especially in Washington State, obviously it's very left, it's very liberal. Uh, In this state, I I just, it it has been increasingly difficult to form some of those partnerships because um, the government thinks of itself as as uh, without, they think of themselves as neutral. Um, but one of the things that we have to expose, I think, in our spheres of influence is the myth of secular neutrality. There is no such thing as a, as a neutral person. There's not neutral morality. There's not neutral religion. There's, people have worldviews. And those worldviews, whether they're framed by organized religion or they're framed by culture or they're framed by media or they're framed by family systems, reflect on their values and they change or dictate the way that they interact with the world around them. And I think the government and oftentimes uh, folks who would be more on the progressive side of things like to, like to position themselves as somehow morally neutral it's like, no, you you guys are the religious nutjobs that you want to impose your morality on everybody else. And I'm like, man, look at all this legislation that you guys have. You're imposing your morality more than anybody else I know. In fact, government and politics is just the argument over whose morality is more moral. I mean, that that's what it comes down to. Uh, and um, so... Uh, You know, for me, I I look at that and I go, man, it's a real nuanced balance. Uh, But Christians got to be unapologetic and unafraid to to be authentically Christian, but also authentically uh, uh, aware of the culture that they live in and uh, understand that, you know, if you're a a believer who works in Hollywood, a believer who works in politics, a believer who works in healthcare, a believer who works in uh, a grocery store. It's not, it's not your job to try to turn every conversation into some sort of gospel initiative. Like, just stop being weird. Just, be, just do everything as it is under the Lord. Be an excellent person. Be a person of integrity and character. When you mess up, admit it. Keep moving on. Be a gospel witness. Be a force for good in the world around you. Allow the leading of the Holy Spirit to guide you when there's opportunities for healing, miracles, words of knowledge, wisdom, casting out devils, all sorts of things. Uh, but yeah, I do agree with your premise. We've we've abandoned a lot of areas. Those areas have gotten increasingly worse. And then we've wrung our hands and complained about how bad they are. And I'm like, okay, let's recognize that there's some darkness and then let's do something about it. Mm. And so we really need an empowered gospel. We need an empowered Christianity. We need an empowered eschatology uh, that tells people that we're not just going to wait for the world to collapse and then pray Christ returns. We're going to do something about it.
0: Yeah. Beyond solely voting, right, exactly. You know, That's just part trusting of a politician, right? Yeah, right. Like, do, do those things, but also the church needs to, right. You know, build businesses and, yes. and be able to fund their own initiatives yeah. and not wait on the government to right. do everything.
2: Yeah, and I, look, I think we're living in the last days. Uh, however, uh, two thousand years ago, they thought they was living in the last days too, and so we're gonna be here for a while. So build businesses, build houses, have families, influence institutions. Be a part of, you know what I mean. Be a part of this thing, because uh, as long as the Lord tarries, we got a mandate to fill the earth, and so yeah. let's do that. Uh, and 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 you know, people love to complain. Is everybody's complaining about everything? Just do, just shut up and do something about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really good. I want to, I want to take this a little bit uh, different direction. Now I, I purposely, I mentioned in the beginning that you, you, you bring a, a great connection between the intellectual and the spiritual. And I want everyone to get a, a chance to just kind of experience that um, you used words that I've never used in my life. Uh, many of them <laughs> in, the, in the last hour. Um, so I want to, uh, I want to hear from you. Like, how do you keep a good balance um, of without letting the intellectual side take over right um or losing the intellectual side where you're just floating right
2: <laughs> you now no that's good and i think it's been a tough balance especially being a pastor you know you want to um, you want to feel good about what you deliver you want to feel like it's well researched and well communicated but also uh it's, it's at the end of the day, it's, it's not about an informed mind, it's about an inflamed heart. And mm. your heart will take you places your brain can't fit. And so for me, I, I, I think about these two elements, you know, the, the heart and the mind, and going, they're connected. Um, they don't exist without the other, but they also occupy different and defined spaces. And um, without the heart, the mind doesn't function. Without the mind, the heart doesn't function. We gotta love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and, and strength. And together, those four parts are kind of the makeup of every every man, woman, and child. Uh, for me, um, you know, my pursuit of of some of the academic credentialing and, and some of the kind of intellectual development has really been out of a conviction that it's one of the it's one of the ways that I honor the congregation that I serve. It's through making a commitment to be a better me. And maybe a generation ago, it was like, everybody needs to go to college. And I don't, I don't believe that today. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people end up going to college, getting worthless degrees in a ton of debt that they'll never pay back so that they can work at jobs outside of their field that they didn't need to go to college for anyways. And so I'm not one of those people who's just like, if you want to be successful, you got to go to college, blah, blah, blah. Uh, however, I, I grew up in a home that, that my parents really valued and honored education, and, and both of my parents worked in higher ed at one point. And uh, I, I just always knew from a young age that that would be something that, that God would give me a grace to do, and he has. Um, I think probably a fraction of 1% of the population has uh, accredited PhDs. Uh, and so I know that this isn't a path for anybody. I bring that up not, not to make myself sound unique, but to go, it's a unique grace. There's a grace that God has put on my life for this level of learning. And, uh, and I'm in the final dissertation process. And I could graduate as early as May of, 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 of this year, which is, which is 2021. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if I'll hit that target. I'd like to, but, but it's a lot of work. Uh, but for me, it's been this ongoing journey of going, um, what do I owe the cross in this season? Hmm. That's been like a defining, um, thing for me in my life. Every season requires different sacrifice. What do I bring to the cross in this season? And I think for me, when I started this PhD program a number of years ago, what I needed to bring to the cross was this feeling of like, I'm already planting a church. I'm already doing it successfully. What do I need more of? Uh, And really bringing that to the Lord and going, hey, maybe this is a way for God to open doors that I don't even know are there yet. Things in my future that I don't even know are going to be unlocked, but God needs to use this process to help me be the type of person that can successfully operate in those environments. And so for me, I also feel like, especially in the Pentecostal movement uh, and, and more broadly in the charismatic movement, there has kind of been this um, thought that we're a bunch of idiots and it's all about emotionalism and it's just... Those guys are a bunch of tongue-talking morons, and they have a really shallow theology, and it's all about feeling good. and And I just go: every movement has its critiques, and some of those critiques are based on somewhat fair analyses. However, as it pertains to the, the Pentecostal movement, you know, I think there's actually a lot of rich heritage uh, as it pertains to, to people being educated and academic and intellectual and. You know, Pentecost came to America as, as birthed out of a Bible college course that William Seymour sat in. And uh, he didn't even have a great Bible teacher. His Bible teacher was a segregationist. The white sat inside. He sat outside. Uh, but he got so moved by his Bible college experience that he traveled to L.A. and was said, revival or bust. And in 1906, what started was a global movement that now represents somewhere near 800 million Christians around the world. And so I go, hey, there's something to this, Uh, but I think it's also a way for um, me to marry the two in my lifetime to go, look, we're going to have uncompromising uh, uh, education, wisdom, knowledge, the development of intellect, uh, pursuit of of, of academic qualifications, and also this, um, relentless conviction that if the spirit of God doesn't show up in what we do, then all we've done is waste people's times. And so, um, mm. I am more charismatic today than I've ever been in my life. Uh, I am also more convinced that I need that intellectual piece to help me be a better version of who God has asked me to be. And so it's not a path for everybody, but I think for, for me, I want to write. Uh, I, I already teach, I do some teaching and, and I felt like so many times as pastors, we stand in front of our congregations week in and week out and we preach messages to help people get better, help people grow. And a lot of times I look at these pastors and I go, but you're not growing, Hmm. but you're not developing, but where is this modeled in your life what are the what are the things that what are the ways in which you are are taking your own advice and uh so i just really got convicted i I finished my grad degree a number of years ago and and i just felt like the lord said you're going to get a phd and i don't think it's going to be the last degree that i get um, because again i think it's a grace that god's put on my life and so as long as he'll help me um, I'm going to continue to pursue some of this stuff, and it also gives you. Uh, it also gives you. Uh, I think it gives you credibility in places that you don't always have credibility, mm-hmm. and so uh, for me, that's helpful.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I think part of that grace too, because um, most people. I mean, it's definitely, there's an intelligence level and, and most people with enough time would be able to do what you're doing, but you're able to do that in the midst of leading a church in the midst of having a newborn baby and, you know, a couple kids, a wife, you know, all, all of the other things you have to do and still being able to do that like that. That's a grace from God. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, so for, for you, how does God typically speak to you?
2: Yeah, oftentimes, uh, and I I mentioned this a little with the Acts 15 model, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Um, But oftentimes, I feel like the Lord speaks to me specifically through like a peace. I'll get a peace as what I would call confirming witness in my life. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes people in our movement act like they just hear the audible voice of God all the time. And I just think that they're probably not telling the truth. But uh, I, I'd love that. If God would like to do that for me, I'd love that. But um, I like to tell people, if you want to hear the audible voice of God, just read your Bible out loud and you will hear it, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, for me, oftentimes the Lord would just visit me with a peace. I'll feel like, I'll be like weighing a decision. Do we go this way or do we go that way? Or what should I, and then all of a sudden I just sense like, man, I really have a peace from the Lord on this path forward. Uh and then you know we have a community of people who are prophetic you're one of them and and God has even used you in my life to help guide and lead and and provide direction and so i really um i really think that that the community of believers that God places you in oftentimes functions as one of not the only but one of the mouthpieces by which he speaks and so uh i really I really hear and sense God through through uh, through the presence of peace on decision making, through the presence of trusted friends who operate as prophetic voices. Obviously, through the reading of Scripture and and the Spirit of God speaking through those ways. But I would say that that's primary. Uh, every once in a while, you know, you'll have that encounter. Uh, I, I I have been visited by angels. I have heard the audible voice of the Lord. Uh, those things for me are, are more rare. Uh, but I, I've had those experiences and, and I'm grateful for them.
0: Yeah. Uh, would you be open to sharing one of those that really shaped your life or impacted you in a great way?
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This was a, this was probably, um, about three years ago. Now I was on a prayer retreat with, um, uh, some friends, uh, in Spokane one of our board members was there uh, as well, and what I found is like some of the most significantly spiritual moments in my life have happened in times that don't feel very spiritual at all. And I know like a prayer retreat sounds really spiritual, but it just it just was a couple guys hanging out of, out of the house, making time for prayer. Uh, we had ate dinner that night, uh, going to bed, and um, and I was I was uh, awakened about. Uh, Two thirty, three a.m. Uh, by uh, an angel who walked into my room. It was this being of light, dramatic. It wasn't like a, you know how like you wake up in the middle of the night and your eyes are kind of blurry and you check your iPhone. It wasn't like that. It was like, uh, it, it was an angelic bing, and uh, they they walked in my room and they placed a key on my shoulder and. Uh, And, um, I, I could tell it was an angelic encounter because there was a fear of the Lord that was on my life. And you see those in angelic encounters, uh, oftentimes in the new Testament, you know, uh, it's this fear, it's almost this confusion. You know, you see that with Mary and Joseph, it's like, why are you here? What is going on? Like other times it's this just overwhelming reverence, but I knew, I knew that it was an angelic encounter. And, uh, and this, this, this thing was placed on my shoulder, and, um, and uh, I woke up, and, and the Lord spoke to me, and He said, I'm giving you the key of David. I'm giving you the key of David. And I didn't really—I uh, I knew that was in Scripture. You know when you know something's in Scripture, but you don't know where it is, got to look it up. And so I went and looked it up, yeah. and, and it, it, it's, it it's first appears in Isaiah. It later appears in Revelation, where Jesus writes His letters to the churches. But it's spoken of in a messianic sense that Jesus will have the key of David, that he will open doors no man can shut, and he'll shut doors that no man can open. The Lord spoke to me in that environment, and and I really felt like he said, you have been a pastor, but I'm putting an apostolic mantle on your life. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Not not in the sense that to diminish a pastoral role or to say that um, somehow... Uh, I wasn't going to be a pastor anymore, but I felt like the Lord was saying, "I'm adding now a layer. I'm adding a layer to your life that hasn't been there before," and um, and that was probably one of the more dramatic moments uh, in my life. And I like to me, I wish every story was like that. You know, most of the time it's like, well, I was driving in the car and I kind of sensed that the Lord was leaning in this direction. You know, um, but that one marked me, and I knew that it was like a spiritual destiny shaping moment for me.
0: Yeah. That's
2: powerful. Yeah.
0: And so how many, how often has, have, have things like that happened in your, your walk or, or, what's kind of the rhythm? Have you noticed any kind of rhythms of like when those happen or it, is it every couple <clears throat> years, is it every couple months?
2: I would say it's probably happened less than a dozen times. You know, I know some people it's like they write entire books. It's like, they've got 17 friend angels that follow them wherever they go. And it's just like, I read that, I'm like, man, I wish I had that. And, and maybe I do, I just don't see it. But for me, i I probably had that level of dramatic encounter in my Christian walk probably a dozen times over the last decade. Uh and um you know, but even you know, Paul when he writes uh the the Church in Corinthians, he talks about, he goes, you know, I've been to heaven. I I've seen things. He goes, I see I've seen things I don't even write about, you know. Uh and so Uh, For me, I haven't tried to build um, a big uh, thing around them. Like, all right, breaking news, guys. On on, on Saturday night, I was visited by an angel. But I've used it more as like an interior thing from the Lord. Like God's like, hey, look, I see you. Uh, I've equipped you. I've called you. I've noticed that it's happened at turning points in my life or my development Mm -hmm. when I have... um, when I've been in transitional seasons. So it seems like for me, I'll have those type of encounters in transitional seasons. It also tends to happen a lot when I go overseas. And so to me, those are the two markers. Uh, it's, transitional, it's transitional seasons or it's overseas overseas ministry. Um, and so whenever, whenever I find myself in either of those seasons, I just kind of expect that uh, uh, an encounter that would be out of the norm. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I would I would say actually something pretty similar. Yeah, uh, for me, like most of those kind of encounters have happened in the missions field, like right. traveling somewhere out of the normal. God speaks almost every, even in the U.S. Actually, even almost every time I'm not where I live, right? Uh, I end up having something like that. Yes. But then the ones, the other side of that is the ones that are it's it's in seasons where I'm. I'm leaning into God. Right. Right. I, you know, I'm just doing the mundane things, doing, doing what I've been assigned to do. And then he breaks in, in some way. And it does like typically mark a new, a new season and a change. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. hundred percent.
0: Um, who, who have been some of the the people that have impacted you the most? Like, are there any like generals of the faith or, or authors or anything like that? People that you've known that mentored you, like,
2: yeah, uh, for me, um, uh, uh, this is a person I don't know personally. He's no longer here today, but uh, really impacted me from afar was the ministry of Steve Hill. And he was the evangelist at the Brownsville Revival. That was really like my first, uh, the Brownsville Revival was really my first encounter with what re- what does revival look like? Um, and it, did you get a go? And I didn't. My parents did at one point, but, you know, talking about kind of how digital can serve the mission of God at that time, you know, they didn't have DVDs or, you know, online hosting or whatever, but they had these VHS tapes that they would yeah. make of their revival services. And so my dad at one point ordered a bunch and just was like, Hey, let's watch these. And something happened in my heart when I saw them. I just knew, like I saw it and I go, I'm giving my life for this. And I mean, I was, I was young. It it wasn't like I was 28. I mean, I think I was 11 or 12, you know, but I saw that and I just went, I'm giving my life for this. And I just knew at that point, like God is stamping me for revival. And, uh, and so, um, Steve Hill, John, John Kilpatrick and and Dr. Michael Brown, who kind of stewarded that move of God for that season. You know, really impacted me, uh, and then personally, I experienced it here uh, with the ministry of Benny Perez, who now pastors in Vegas, but um, he led an outpouring of the Spirit of God at Marysville First Assembly of God. And Marysville is a city that's probably about ten minutes away from us, uh, and um, and uh, it's just God touched down; it, it heaven came to earth, and in Marysville leading this youth ministry at an average sized AG church with a thousand kids showing up and the power of God. And, and, uh, I, I, my parents would take me as a, as a, as a child. We didn't attend that church, but he was having revival meetings like every night and I would just go and I just watch and the power of God would rest, rest on me. And sometimes I would fall out under the power and, and other things. And God just stamped my life. He said, and I just felt like this, like, Hey, if you, if you'll give your life for this, you'll see this, you'll see this in your generation. And, uh, that's what one of my friends, Tracy Armstrong says, he says, every generation needs their own story, every generation. And so you can only feed yourself so much on last generation story. Every generation needs their own story. And so <clears throat> for me, when I think about those types of experiences as a kid, you know, it was really, it was really the revival guys, you know, and, and of course, the uh, preaching of Leonard Ravenhill, uh, obviously that was very uh, impactful. Some of those generals. Uh, one of the books that impacted me growing up was actually God's Generals by Roberts Liardin, and just reading the story of these kind of giants of the faith and helping it come alive. He was really one of the first mm-hmm. people who I, I thought really successfully documented revival culture and revival movements. And then probably a decade ago, I read uh, Bill Johnson's book, When Heaven Invades Earth. And that book, outside of the Bible, the most transformational book in my life was When Heaven Invades Earth. And I feel like, and I mean, I feel like everybody's like, well, Bill Johnson's my spiritual dad. And Bill's like, I don't even know you guys. You know, who are you? I've never (laughs) met him. I've never even been actually to Bethel. Uh, I've never been to a conference there. I mean, I've enjoyed some of their stuff online, but I've never been in person. But I feel like what they've been able to do in Reading is pastor a revival instead of just having a revival they have stewarded it and pastored it over years and uh, you know uh, and it, it doesn't mean that it's the exact flavor for me or i agree with everything or whatever but i just look at that and i go a lot of places have hot spots for a minute or two a lot of places have almost these uncontrollable fires and as quickly as they show up they burn out uh, but I feel like what they've been able to do at Bethel, and I don't know the inner workings, so I could be wrong, but what I feel like as an outside observer is that they've really been one of the more successful churches and movements that have really pastored revival culture. And so um, that that ministry really impacted me.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I think uh, Bethel from what I'm hearing stuff, there's some things happening again and you can hear it. Uh, you can hear it in Bill, like how he's kind of broken right. again in a fresh way, right. um, which actually while you were talking, I was thinking about you. And so I had shared, uh, I've never shared this publicly, but I've, I had shared with you that I'd watched you for a while. Mm-hmm. And like, I had seen like a, tra- a real transition begin to happen. It's kind of interesting hearing you talk about that encounter with the key Um, and God, you know, like the apostolic kind of being open to you. Cause I feel like, I don't know if that's happened like a next layer of it Mm -hmm. or now it's like the manifestation of it, but that's what I've, that process of, of seeing you become much more, uh, even in my short time of knowing you much more apostolic in the way you carry yourself and the way you think, um, and the, in the authority you carry had, had changed. Um, but I wanted to ask, so there was this point, and and maybe you did something, maybe there was something you were pursuing behind the scenes, or maybe not, um, but there was this point where you were on, like, another level with just brokenness, similar to what, what I'm hearing from Bill right now, but just this, like, you, you were just hungry for it in a new, fresh way, this is probably... Man time flies. I, I don't even know. it's It's that time when you went to, you got up and you went to get an, give an offering mm-hmm. and it turned into like a 10 minute thing and people were crying. I remember people got on their faces as you just you just spoke and I think you even started crying. but the presence of God, like that was probably probably one of the most tangible mm-hmm. without getting into too much, like the difference between like the presence of God is always at the pursuit. Sure. Just you worship, he shows up, he loves it, but that was like this like glory anointing thing that started to happen as you spoke, which is not that's not common on a Sunday morning. Um, Just it's it's a very special thing, and it started to happen. Do you, you know the time period I'm talking about? Sure, sure, I think so. And and was there was there anything that really led you into that? Was it an encounter? Was it were you pursuing things behind the scenes? Was it uh, holy frustration happening? Like where where were you at at that point?
2: Yeah, I pro- probably a combination of a little bit of all of the above. Um, I feel like uh, I feel like um yeah, scripture says God is close to the broken and the contrite and that a bruised reed he will not break and 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 um for me, another guy who's been really um, influential, I think, in my development, especially of a theology of brokenness, has been a guy like Corey Russell uh, and, and the way that he shares about the presence of God and the glory of God and, and, and those types of things. But I, what I find is, and you hit on this, it, it's cyclical that I'll go through these seasons of like uh, what I would call travail, for the things of God, for the deep things of God, for the church, for the lost, for, um, you know, an outpouring of God's presence in our generation. So I'll go through these, uh, uh, seasons where that it's always a part of who I am, but, um, seasonally those things will bubble up inside of me. Mm. And I feel like God uses it as, um, think about it like, uh, the analogy of, of eating a meal, And if every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you ate um, uh, steak, uh, eventually you'd get to a place where you were no longer liking it, you were tired of it, you didn't value it. And so I really think about that in the context of church community, especially communication, uh, is that God will take me through seasons where I'm serving vegetables because every healthy person has to eat their vegetables. And mm-hmm. and uh, those are messages that might not make the highlight reel for the sermon clips, but they are ones that you need if you want to stay married, have a healthy family, have healthy finances. It, it's the vegetables, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's yeah. uh, uh, seasons where I feel like I'm I'm sharing dessert, and it's like people are like that, Pastor, that was the best message I ever heard, and that was so great, and that was so encouraging. Man, I just I feel like I I could take over the world, and I just Uh, high energy and you know and then there's these seasons these weeping prophet seasons you know Mm. and I don't know what that would be I don't know if that's the steak or the potatoes or what it is but those those are those are the seasons by which uh, I really invite the church into the inner travail that inner brokenness that deep well And I'm asking people to partner with that deep groan, you know, the things that are groaning inside of you. Like Paul says, how the Spirit prays through you through groans and utterances. And I think I used to, as a revival guy, I think I used to almost put a pressure on myself to like, that needs to be every Sunday. And what I begin to recognize is that like, most of the meals that you will eat in 2021, you will not remember. But every one of the meals you eat in 2021 is part of what contributes to a healthy, happy, and whole person. There's gonna be a couple meals you eat in 2021 and you're like, this is the best thing. I'm gonna remember that. Remember when we went to Ascend, we got to Seafood Tower? It was the bet, like legit one of the best meals we've ever had.
0: The dry ice, the dry ice
2: dessert. (laughs) dessert. I'll remember that meal legit for the rest of my life. I can't tell you what I ate the next day. But what I ate the next day was just as important to my nutritional value as that memorable meal that you and I shared. And I think about that in the context of communication, of going like, and that's what I hear the feedback from people who've gone to Bethel, who are now back here. I've heard that they're like, you show up and you recognize that it's just a normal church and, you know, normal in quotes, but they're like, they do normal things. And they have normal problems like any other normal church. And I think for me that was one of the misconceptions of revival culture was that every sermon, every meeting, or every worship event had to be the um, fire tunnel, uh, weight of the glory of God, everybody face down. And what I began to realize is that that was actually an unsustainable diet. That that needed to be there. Uh, and that God would bring it to the surface as needed to help contribute to the health of the church. And so I hope that doesn't make me sound like a sellout, like, well, he's just not like super interested in revival. Like, no, I'm like, I'm giving my life for a move of God, like 100% I'm in. Uh, but what I've noticed is that for me personally as a communicator, it looks like vegetables, steak, potatoes, salad, water juice wine it looks like all of it and as a communicator i'll go through seasons or series by which i really plug into certain elements that help contribute to those ingredients
0: Hmm. yeah i remember you shared that with me at one point i've never forgotten that explanation i think it's that's for anybody who actually does preach or teach on a regular basis that's so freeing yeah um but I, I, I was just having a thought about this. I, I think I think that those moments, too, when—I forget how, exactly how you said it, but it's almost like you expose that travail or that brokenness to the church. And, like, God just—it's it, something he does. Right, like, that, he pulls it out of you, puts right. it on display. And there's something about that that almost separates people. Yes. Uh, it, it. Some people it's going to stir. Some people they don't even really pick up on what's happening. Uh, enough to grab a hold of it, um, but the the hungry do, and I think that's when, whether we can realize that as leaders or not, right. I think that's when our church is established. Yes. it's like uh, the, the, those are those those are the people who are with us, right. who are who are a part of this thing that God's doing, and I think that that is what prepares for the moments when the glory does come, right. and something like with Bethel and the glory cloud or, you know, Brownsville and just this mass repentance and, you know, the, those sorts of moments, we've got to be able to, to recognize, okay, we we guys step out of church as normal right now and surrender fully to this moment. And it's the moments of the glory coming and the travail being exposed and stuff over different seasons that prepare the, at least a, a part of the church right. to surrender fully to that moment and not be like, okay, when's this gonna be over? I gotta go to lunch. Right, right, right. And I think I think that's it. Almost like prepares for those revival, more what we would in the charismatic world think of with re- like a revival moments or a revival service. It's it's it builds up to that, and and it's people learning how to. Uh, it's, it's you displaying as a, as a leader, I'm, I'm kind of verbally processing, sure, sure. but it's you just displaying as a leader how to honor God in that moment. Cause like the one I'm talking about in particular, you were taking an offering. Right, right, right. And, and it just, you didn't, you didn't try to stay on. Mm. I'm taking an offering. Mm. You recognize uh, whether you, it was super conscious or not, you just kind of went with it, but like you went with the moment. You went with God, what God was doing, and that was a greater teaching moment than probably anything else you said that day. Yeah, um, and that did more in the hearts of at least some people than uh, than just a, another message would have done. Um, not taking away from the other messages because exactly what you're saying; those are just as important. But those those moments of of you you discipling by doing by God doing that through you, I think that's preparing. The ones who are really with you, who when the glory comes, they're going to be the Mm -hmm. ones to lay on their faces and like, okay, I'm not doing anything else. And others may leave, it'll offend people, whatever, that stuff will happen. But those will be the ones who caught the travail along the way, and they'll be ready. Right,
2: right, right, 100%. Yeah, and it's, you know, I feel like God uses those as defining moments in the culture of any church where um, you're signaling to the people, hey, like, this is the priority, Like, we're not giving the Holy Spirit, like, a portion of the service. Like, all right, Holy Spirit, like, you can kind of mess around a little bit for, like, the 20 minutes of worship. Like, He has the room uh, because Jesus is the guest of honor because the church doesn't exist to serve people. The church exists to glorify Jesus. And so, as a subset of glorifying Jesus, we train and develop and serve people and reach the community. The primary is that we glorify Christ. So... Yeah, I think, you know, God uses these defining moments in the development of a church. And, uh, you know, we, we have, we've had people leave and say, well, you know, that was, I really liked when you were a little more dignified and intellectual. And I just go, I get that. But who I am, if you, you know, when you cut me, what I bleed is a move of God. I, I bleed revival. It's who God has created me to be. And so, um, uh, and, and I'm trying to build a coalition of people to come with me in that direction. And so it's this weird balance, you know, at times where I have to temper my tendencies and other times where I have to really display my proclivities. And I'm doing, I'm doing both, you know, in some environments I'm like, man, I could prophesy to paint off this thing. And then in other environments I'm like, man, I really got to teach here in this moment. You know, I I just really want to jump around, but I really got to teach in this moment. And so it's this kind of inner, I don't want to say struggle, but it's this inner dynamic It's like uh, if you've ever had a a five-speed car and you're pressing in the clutch and you're shifting gears. And the more you drive that car, the more familiar you are with that what RPM you can shift into what gear. And you put somebody new in that car and they press in the clutch and they grind the gears. It's always the first thing they do because they're learning at what range that car can shift at. And I think as the church has grown and developed We've had to adjust at what range we shift, and to really, you know, help people go. Hey, let's, you know, we're going to run an excellent service, and we're going to stick to a timetable and a schedule and a planning center and all those types of things. But at the end of the day, um, when the presence of God shows up in a manifest way, He has the room. And if the service goes three hours, it goes three hours. And if that offends you, and this isn't the church for you, that's fine. But um, we're never going to apologize for um, mm. that type of pursuit, you know?
0: So good. Well, I want to uh, to close this out. I want uh, to let you share uh, with our listeners the, the question I, I mentioned earlier. Like, if, if all of humanity was listening to you right now because my podcast is that popular. I know. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Uh, everyone's listening to you right now. Like, obviously, we would all share the gospel if we had all of humanity's attention. But if all of humanity was listening right now, what would you what would you speak to them other than the gospel? Obviously, what would you say to them right now? Just speak to the listeners. Take a minute or two, uh, or as long as you need.
2: Yeah, uh, I think mostly this. There, there, there is there is no environment in which Jesus isn't king. There's a lot of environments by which people yet don't recognize that reality. But there is not a power struggle in heaven. There is no environment in which Jesus isn't king. And the lamb remains worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. And so, you know, for me, uh, I, I have become convinced of, 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 of that central message that Christ has given us the authority to do something, not just to read, not just to observe, but to participate in the work of the ministry. And so uh, I think, you know, uh, for me and in, in my disposition... Uh, uh, that 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 is the that is the foundation that that I that I have settled on. That Christ has placed me on Earth in this very interesting cultural moment. That the God who uh, knows the end from the beginning saw it so fit to place me in 2021 uh, with the authority to do something with the gospel that I read, and going from a casual observer to an active participant in the activity of heaven causes me to recognize that every environment that I walk into, um, every city that I go into, uh, it represents a place where God is giving me the land. And so, it's kind of with that knowledge and and with that belief that we aim to be a force for good in the world around us and to see ultimately His kingdom come and His will be done in this place even as it's being done in heaven. Hmm.
0: So good. Awesome. How can, uh, if, if people want to keep up with you or the pursuit, how can they follow you?
2: Yeah. Uh, mostly, uh, the pursuit Uh, it's going to be our website and, uh, the pursuit W is I think most of our social media handles as well. And, and, um, that's where all of our content is. And, uh, and, um, you know, I, as you know, I say this a lot, we, uh, we don't take ourselves really seriously. Uh, but we take the gospel really seriously and, uh, we're seeing a move of God in Snohomish. We really are like we, uh, we are seeing a move of God. It's not that it won't grow, uh, in power and presence because to the increase of his kingdom, there's no end, but we are having a move of God that people have prayed for for years. We're having it. Uh, I don't mean to say that we're the only ones having it, but we, we're, we're having it. And it's going to continue to grow in power and impact. And so we're asking people to pray into uh, what part they ought to play in that move of God and together help us pastor a revival, not just have a revival. You know, revival wrecks most churches. Um, yeah, Because they a lot of them never learn how to turn the corner on pastoring and stewarding it. And so... I want a long burn more than I want a a flash in the pan moment, and so, yeah. Pursuit and W, and and I love to connect with people over there. So,
0: yeah, and also if they if they can find your personal uh, Instagram, yeah,
2: I'll block them. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: it's hilarious. Uh... We have fun. We have fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thanks for being on. Uh, for those who are listening, thank you so much uh, for, for listening. If you made it an hour 45, uh, congrats. You're, you're yeah, you're amazing. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you'd like to support what we're doing uh, with the fire podcast, you can go to fire movement.com slash support. Uh, and you can give a one-time gift or monthly, uh, please share with your friends, family, uh, everyone, you know, and, uh, we look forward to hearing from you soon. Uh, Reach out to us. We'd love to hear testimonies, how this has impacted you, that sort of thing. So thank you guys, and we will talk to you soon. Awesome.